and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Morgan Carpenter to discuss his paper with Chris Jordans entitled, When Bioethics Fails, Intersex Epistemic Injustice and Advocacy. Hello, Morgan. Hi, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to be talking with you. Thanks so much for joining me. This is going to be a great conversation. Um, So we're talking about a chapter that you wrote with Chris Jordans today, or at least we're using your chapter to frame a discussion um, because the chapter itself is a discussion. So it's an interesting <laughs> format. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Having an interview about an interview. Yeah, exactly. So I wonder if um, you could actually just give our listeners a sense of what your chapter is about to get started. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it, it's fundamentally about how Uh, Medicine and society treat uh, people with innate variations of sex characteristics. Uh, And, you know, that's a long term to describe a population that has many different terms attached to it, including the word intersex, including uh, clinical language of disorders of sex development or differences of sex development. Um, and historical language as well, like the word hermaphrodite, um, that still has a resonance or impact on the population. Um, so um, the focus is on bioethics and epistemic injustice and, and advocacy. And I think really the relationship between bioethics and advocacy, um, which very much is focused upon my own experience. I mean, so, so people you know, who are listening might not know, um, I describe myself as an intersex man. I have a history of um, medicalization um, to make my body appear more typically male, including hormone treatment and, and surgical interventions. Um, those surgeries were initially you know, it did not have my personal informed consent, uh, even though I was old enough to consent to them, because I had no connection to community. I had no real understanding of the long-term effects of the medical interventions. Um, and I think that, that, that it, those personal experiences um, have driven both my advocacy work and my interest in bioethics. Um, the, the interest in advocacy work is, is I, I want other people to have community connection, to have connection to peer support. Um, and I want, through my study in bioethics, to actually understand more about medicine and why it's treated people the way it does, or why it continues to treat people the way it does. Yeah. So I I wonder if that kind of touches on some of the motivations for writing this chapter, because the chapter is set up as a discussion between yourself and Chris, where you're sort of discussing the limitations of bioethics as a a place of critique, I suppose, of medical practice as compared to advocacy. Would that be kind of fair? It's fair, I think, but but it's a... um a limitation that is shared by many other forms of inquiry as well. I, th- I think it is worth saying, I mean, it, it is an interview of an interview. Originally, the, the material in the chapter was a, a podcast. 
Mm. Uh, it was a uh, an audio interview by Chris Jordans with me that was part of the curriculum for biomedicine and society, which for 15 years was a unit of study in the bioethics program. Um, and the uh, rationale for essentially writing it up more formally as a chapter um, was intended to just try and, and share the discussion and share the uh, analysis really of the relationship between bioethics and other lines of inquiry or other forms of inquiry uh, and particularly the relationship between bioethics and advocacy um, in the hope that it might be useful or or, um, or provoke, you know, uh, consideration of these issues by by other people, in, in bioethics in particular, but also in other um, areas of research that, that maybe haven't touched upon bioethics so much. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious to ask you about your view on the relationship between bioethics and advocacy. <laughs> so... Um, the paper does make an argument about this, uh, the paper that, that, that is hinted at in the title, uh, When Bioethics Fails. Um, and the argument is that, that bioethics has not prevented harm to individuals with intersex variations, um, and that advocacy is necessary because of that failure. And that's uh, quite a significant uh, consequential statement. Um, the, you know, the paper doesn't consider all of the reasons why bioethics has failed. Um, but I think, you know, bioethics over the past 25, 30 years has been used as a tool to justify medical practices that fail to respect the human rights of people with innate variations of sex characteristics. Yeah, this is an interesting, um, an interesting kind of paradox, I guess, as I see it, which is that while bioethics tries to critique and tries to change for the better certain kinds of practices in medicine and research and nursing and all sorts of things. It can also be used as a way of justifying practices that aren't actually good or um, independently justifiable. But people who do those practices can use bioethics almost as a sort of shield. And there's um, there's an interview that, or actually a, a debate that you engaged in with some surgeons that um, we'll link to in the show notes as well. But I thought brought this up because uh, they sort of seemed to use bioethics as a justification for what they were doing. And you um, were quite critical of that, kind of pressed them on it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, that um, the history of bioethical inquiry on these issues is not a good one. Um, the, uh, if we go back to the 1990s, um, the, the, you know, I've, I read a paper in the 1990s that talks about how parents who did not consent to surgery on their child were negligent. Um, and 
that was critiqued at the time, of course, but, but over the years since then, there are, there are many papers that talk about intersex issues in bioethics. Um, they are as diverse as the bioethic, bioethicists that write them, but the predominant trend has been to justify medical intervention or to, um, if not directly, if not directly justify medical intervention, to create the circumstances where medical interventions are possible, permissible, uh, and facilitated. I think that some of that arises because of because bioethics is a young profession, and the kinds of medical interventions that take place have a longer history. So um, there is. I mean, I guess you could say it's a, an incumbency advantage, you know, that the status quo is one where medical interventions are routine and changing that is a more difficult task than justifying them or letting them happen. Yeah, but you mentioned the debate. I mean, the debate, mm -hmm. I think, is it's a debate between myself um, who has a master's in bioethics from Sydney Health Ethics and is doing a PhD in this field. Um, it is chaired by a bioethicist in Melbourne uh, who attempts to construct some kind of common understanding. Um, and the other two participants are a paediatric urologist and a paediatric gynecologist, both of them surgeons. And I critique through the debate uh, a whole range of issues from the composition of the um, participants in the debate which lacks any kind of psychosocial or psychological engagement uh, which is illustrative of some of the issues in med the medical paradigm uh, to a, a failure of medicine to respect the human rights of, of children and, and even adults with intersex variations. Mm -hmm. I mean, ha you, you, you've listened to it. Yeah, and I, I did find it really interesting. And um, again, listeners who are, who are keen can check it out too, um, because it is publicly available. And um, I mean, what I, what I noticed or what I thought I noticed was that the same ground was kind of covered repeatedly. There was a kind of a lot of yeah, but from um, the surgeons on the panel where you were sort of giving these critiques of um, assumptions or practices and the response was sort of, yeah, but um, science says or our best um, medical evidence says. And it seemed to me that this brought up, first of all, there was clearly a kind of gulf, I thought, between um, what you were saying and what they were hearing and a kind of inability to hear what you were actually saying and to take it on and respond. And then I think I also noticed what I suppose is a kind of common um, theme in medicine, which is that there's a kind of engineering approach. There's a problem here, we'll fix it. And it doesn't take account of, you know, how do we construct the existence of the problem in the first place? What does it mean when you've just said that? Um, what does it mean to construct the solution to it? Well, yeah, I, I completely agree with, with both of those points. I mean, to, you know, 
that language of, of fixing things is actually used. One of the surgeons talks about fixing things and giving parents what they want uh, without, mm. without regard for you know, any human rights or ethical considerations at all. Um, that person is the chair of pediatric surgery um, at the institution. Um, so, um, yeah, that language, I mean, it's quite wild. And yeah, I think you also described then a, a talking across purposes or, not, or speaking and not being heard. And I think that that is a, an experience that is not just applicable to that um, debate. I think that's, it, it's evident in the literature. It's evident in discourse and discussion between different stakeholders over a 25-year period. Um, we can go back, um, you know, as far as um, 1996, 1993, and talk about these issues in the same way. You know, the first advocacy organization um, in um, first well-known advocacy organization is called Intersex. Um, the Intersex Society of North America, and it was established in two thousand. Sorry, in nineteen ninety-three, and just three years later, the members of that organization were being described in the New York Times as zealots and the disgruntled ones. I, th I think that exemplifies an incredibly rapid and hostile response by clinicians to contestation about medical practice then and. Medical practice has, well, there are claims that medical practices have changed, but there's very little evidence to support that notion of change. Um, in a separate book chapter published in 2018, uh, which is based on research I did as part of the Masters of Bioethics program at Sydney, um, I do actually try and look at the evidence that we have available from different sources, including Medicare procedures uh, and statements by um, clinicians about their practices, including actually one of the clinicians or one of the surgeons in the, uh, in the debate. And there's very little evidence to say that medical practices have changed. Uh, when you look at the literature and when you look at the um, the evidence on Medicare procedures. Mm. Well, I wanted to ask you, I guess, something a little bit different, though connected to what you've been saying, because in the chapter and throughout our conversation and even in the um, in the debate, um, you use the language of human rights a lot. Um, and I just kind of wanted to ask you about that, partly because I have... Um, you know, I teach human rights in part of the moral theory unit of study that I teach in the Masters of um, Bioethics. But it's, um, I find it a tricky one in some ways to, to fit it into bioethics. The, the debate seems to be bioethics or human rights. Will human rights supersede bioethics? Um, which of these is useful or, you know, how do they fit together? And so I was curious to hear from you um, why human rights has the value or the importance that you think, or the utility, I suppose, um, that you think it has in these kinds of debates? Uh, I mean, the human rights system exists because of 
moral and ethical failure, particularly moral and ethical failure during World War II, uh, and the, the treatment of minorities and uh, you know a whole range of different populations were kind of grievously affected. And we know that, that medicine has been an active participant in many of those failures. So the human rights system, to my mind, is, is a, it's actually a system of jurisprudence uh, and of you know, international jurisprudence that sets out standards and norms. Um, and, and countries, including Australia, have obligations under that system uh, to protect, respect, and fulfill the human rights of citizens and non-citizens. So, I guess in my head, the human rights system is a normative framework that sets that that should set the parameters for bioethics and medicine uh, in terms of defining what is reasonable or unreasonable or permissible or impermissible as, as forms of treatment. So it's a normative framework. It's, you could argue it's a deontological framework and it's a framework that has contested roots um, but is the only framework given that even given that contestation that is widely accepted as providing a minimum framework for how we should live together uh, in, in our country and around the world that's a bit of a kind of a very broad view it, it's, it's, it's a it's a framework for how we live together as human beings on the same planet uh, and it's as flawed as we are but it's the mm -hmm. only framework we have um, the human rights system is not just at that macro international level. It has implications for how individuals and institutions treat others. And this notion about, you know, respecting, protecting and fulfilling the human rights of humans it is relevant to medicine. Um, it's relevant to the treatment of um, all populations with adverse health outcomes, whether they're First Nations people, women, um, people with intersex variations, and, and other minority groups. And these issues are evident at every level, whether we're talking about um, surgical and hormonal treatments on infants and children with intersex variations, whether we're treating about you know, the role of prenatal screening, whether we're talking about the COVID pandemic, um, not on every level. Um, so, yeah. to my mind, they, they set the parameters within which bioethics should be considering what is mm. what is appropriate, what is not appropriate, what's ethical, what's not ethical. Yeah, super interesting. Um, we're already coming towards the end of our conversation. I really wanted to ask you um, a kind of final question about the chapter, and I think actually about the debate too, but I wanted to ask you what you hope people will come away from the um, chapter or the debate, or, you know, you can answer them differently, um, having learned or um, what kind of key ideas you hope that people will walk away with? 
Yeah, thank you. That's a kind of good question, a really good question. Look, I mean, it doesn't answer, it's not intended to answer all the questions about how bioethics should respond to the existence of insects people and the way that people were treated in medicine. Um, I hope it might give people an opportunity to think about those issues, perhaps for the first time. Uh, and I hope that more people in bioethics might uh, familiarize themselves with the way that people with innate variations of sex characteristics are treated in medicine. And uh, there's a lot of work that's being done currently in Australia. So people working in hospitals in Australia can can read an Australian Human Rights Commission inquiry report that was published in October last year that calls for root and branch reform of medical practice in this area. Um, and, you know, you can watch that debate between myself and the paediatric surgeons and, and you know, hear what they have to say uh, and look at the research they present. Um, I think also uh, the, the research that they present is itself challenging. And um, while I did respond at the time, I think it's worth going and reading the book that, that uh, the, the paediatric surgeons wrote. It was published in 2020, um, and it, it outlines the research that they refer to in the debate. And you'll see, if you read it, that the research is based upon old data, 15, 17 years old. Um, it, that data is based upon clinicians studying their own patients. So it's subject to confirmation bias, ascertainment bias. Um, it's research where clinicians have sought to justify their own practices. Uh, and often the people that are being studied actually have no agency uh, to understand themselves in any way other than through the clinical paradigm. Particularly the, the research that's presented on masculinizing surgeries, that, that research in Melbourne is on children, on adolescents, who, who don't have the age or agency to, to really know the outcomes of surgeries and the clinicians are making assumptions based upon those adolescents not having a, a personal recollection of surgery and thinking that that's a good that, that leads to a good outcome there's lots wrong with this and i hope people will take the time to consider the issues more we need more people thinking about the issues yeah absolutely yeah, well, thank you so much for bringing these to us, bringing the issues to me, to our listeners, and hopefully people will take you up on this, learn more, find out more about yeah. it. And please get in touch. I'm always keen to, to, to hear from people and engage. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Morgan. It was really interesting. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find Morgan and Chris's paper linked in this episode's show notes, along with a link to the debate and a transcript of our discussion. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks again for listening. Bye. Bye.